And as Pastor Jeremy said, we're in Romans chapter 3 today. Little Billy, caught in mischief again, was asked by his mother, how do you ever expect to get into heaven? He thought for a moment, then he said, well, I'll just run in and out and keep slamming the door, and they'll say, for heaven's sakes, Billy, either come in or stay out, and I'll come in. (laughs) Well, how do you expect to get into heaven? How... How can anyone expect to be in, get into heaven? How can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? As I said last week, this was uh, proclaimed by Martin Luther and many after him to be the kind of the center of the book of Romans and of the whole Bible, this passage in Romans chapter 3 on justification by faith. It was certainly what uh, spurred on the Reformation. Understanding this passage and uh, the implications of it is much more valuable to us than than if you could read 10,000 self-help books and know what they meant. Because those would only help you for a while and only maybe. But this is eternal truth that not only has the has eternal ramifications for our soul, but enduring practical ramifications for daily life. Understanding this passage. If you get this right, everything else falls into place. If you get this wrong, everything else falls apart. We saw last week that the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ, for all have sinned. That's kind of a summary statement of verses 21 through 23. Let's look at that again, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ, and it's needed by all, for all have sinned. No one enters heaven without God's righteousness. But how do we get God's righteousness? Part of the answer we saw last week in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the foundational point, the beginning point of how do we get God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But now in verses 24 through 26, Paul goes on to explain that more, how God justifies sinners. How, how exactly does that work? Why does that work? Verse 24, being just 
freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith let's stop there consider the meaning of justified both the the word righteous or righteousness and justify or justified however it appears in these texts which is numerous times in verses 21 through 26 those are based on the same Greek word same root word that talks about righteousness and justice so they are closely related ideas and to be justified means to be declared righteous to be justified means to be declared righteous now let's think about what that means for a minute and what it doesn't mean someone once came up with a a kind of a rhyming way of remembering what justified means Um, you could say that justified a person who's justified is just as if I'd never sinned have you heard that before kind of a catchy way to remember that if I'm justified it's just as if I'd never sinned and that's true to a degree as God looks at us and we we know that he has taken away our sin it's in a sense just as if I'd never sinned but it's it's close but not close enough so we need to define it a little bit more as we go along others have uh, offered the word acquittal or acquitted as being a uh, uh, synonym for justified you think about if some, someone, wanted, uh, someone was in a trial uh, on trial for murder and they get acquitted that is they're declared not guilty right they're acquitted of their crime well that justified is similar to that it's, it's being declared not guilty and that too is close but it's not close enough we could imagine a case for instance where someone would be on trial for murder and they are acquitted but they're still guilty right they get off on a technicality or there's not enough proof for some reason and they know they really did it but they get off so it's, it's not that kind of a thing it's not just um it's not just being said you're not guilty to to be justified is to be declared righteous which is more than being declared not guilty to be justified is to be declared righteous now think about this that means from God's point of view it is to be declared guilty and yet righteous See, justified is not to be declared not guilty. It is God declaring you and I guilty of our sin. More than we could ever realize how sinful we are. He declares us guilty, and then he declares us righteous. So how can that be? How, how can that happen? How, what does it say about God's holy standard? How can he at the same time say you are guilty of all this sin in your life and then declare us to be righteous how can God be a just judge if he justifies the guilty 
And that's the question that Paul answers in this passage. The first part of the answer is that justification is a gift from God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. Being justified, notice that that is passive. Some versions say we are justified, but I think it's better to retain the present passive participle, which this is, as being justified. We can't justify ourselves. There's no way that we could ever convince God that we really meant good or that we didn't do that much bad. There's, there's no way we could work for it, pay for it. We, we can't justify ourselves. And, and being justified is something that God does. It's passive on our part, active on God's. Being justified, since justified means to be declared righteous, what he's saying here in verse 24 is being declared righteous by God. Adding to the the fact that it's passive on our part, being justified is the next word, freely. Being justified freely or as a gift. This uh, Greek word in the noun form commonly means gift or as a gift, but it's not a noun here, it's an adverb. And as an adverb, it means something a little bit different. The adverb means without cost or without cause. Being justified without cost. Hear that word in, uh, at the end of the book of Revelation. The spirit, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the waters of life without cost that's Revelation twenty two seventeen. that those several words without cost is the exact same word here translated freely or as a gift means without any cost to us because there's no price that we could pay but also someone paid the price it also means without cause without cost freely and without cause that is that God doesn't look in you and see some reason some merit some cause that would cause him to want to save you there's without cause on our part so being justified freely without cost without cause by God's grace and as you may remember, God's grace is his, his unmerited favor. He freely bestows His grace. We receive what we in no way deserve. Grace is getting something good from someone who owes us nothing. That's what makes it grace. It's getting something good, in this case, eternal life, from someone who owes us nothing at all. Look at Romans uh, 4, verse 3 and 4. 
<clears throat> For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. As we'll see in a couple weeks, Abraham was saved by faith. He believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul is making a great distinction here that to the one who works, the wages that he gets is not counted as grace. So if you work this past week and say you put in your 40 hours or 70 hours or whatever it is, and your boss, employer gives you a check for that, you don't say, well, how gracious that was of you to give me money for nothing. You know you worked for it. Would you? You worked, it's wages, right? You deserve it. Well, what he's saying is that God's gift is not something we worked for. It's not received by work, it's received by grace. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. God is not in our debt. We are in his. It is totally by the grace of God, his unmerited favor. It's a gift from God. Romans 6, verse 23. Carrying on the... the, uh, an analogy of wages for the wages of sin is death it is what you earn what we what we deserve what we get for sin is death eternal separation from God but the gift of God that we come back to the idea of the gift that salvation is a gift the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord So Romans 3.24, how is it that God could justify the guilty? The first part of that answer is that it is a gift from God. Being justified freely by His grace. Secondly, the justification is through Christ being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. The word through means by means of. This this tells us how God accomplished it. How did we get offered the gift? Being justified, being declared righteous freely as a gift from God by His grace through the redemption. Someone paid the price for the gift. We're we're offered this gift of salvation. We don't pay for it. We can't pay for it, but somebody paid for it. So just like if if you're given a gift, it's your birthday or Mother's Day or whatever, and someone gives you a gift, it's not because you earned it. It's because they wanted to give it to you. It didn't cost you anything it's if, if it's a gift to you, but it costs somebody something, right? may not have cost you, but it costs somebody. And for the gift of salvation, it doesn't cost you, but God paid the price through Christ, through 
the redemption. The word redemption <clears throat> is uh, it's only used a few times in the New Testament. It's related to the word ransom. As in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, redemption has the idea of to buy back. <clears throat> in fact, this was a word often used back in the New Testament times. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of the price paid to a captor to get a captive back. Or the price paid to set a, a slave free. That was called the Lutron, the redemption price. This is the price that was paid for us. Being justified, declared righteous freely by His grace through the redemption, His buying us back out of the slavery of sin that is in Christ Jesus. Christ is the one who paid the redemption price. His suffering on the cross paid for our sin. And this is the only payment that God will ever accept. It's a tremendous, costly payment. One of the most magnificent 19th century military expeditions conquered no new lands for Queen Victoria. In fact, you won't find it in many history books because, but because of the monumental logistics, military historians compare the British landing in Ethiopia in 1868 to the Allies' invasion in 1944 of France. For four years, Emperor Theodore III of Ethiopia had held a group of 53 European captives 30 adults and 23 children, including some missionaries and including a British consul. He held them captive in a remote 9,000-foot-high bastion deep in the interior. By letter, Queen Victoria pleaded in vain with Theodore to release the captives. Finally, the government ordered a full-scale military expedition from India to march into Ethiopia not to conquer the country and make it a British colony, but simply to rescue a tiny band of captives. The invasion force included 32,000 men, heavy artillery, 44 elephants to carry the guns. The provisions included 50,000 tons of beef and pork, and being Britishers, 30,000 gallons of rum. <laughs> Engineers built landing piers, water treatment plants, a railroad, a telegraph line into the interior, plus numerous bridges. All of this to fight one decisive battle, after which the prisoners were released and everyone packed up and went home. All of this... The, the British government expended what today would be billions of dollars to rescue a handful of captives. 
But that's nothing compared to the price that God the Father was willing to pay to rescue us from slavery to sin. He determined to send his own son and the son agreed to die on the cross to pay for our sin. And he offers it now as a gift because he has paid the price through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Consider the sacrificial payment. Verse 25 says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. He is the sacrificial payment. God, whom God set forth. Um, I like how the New American Standard says, Whom God publicly displayed. It really gets to the heart of it. This, this, the idea of set forth here is to do something purposefully and publicly. Whom God purposely, publicly put forth as the propitiation. Now that's a word you probably don't use very much, right? And we might use it sometimes like a, if we say a, it, it was a propitious moment, Propitious means it was um, favorable in that sense. And so the idea is kind of propitiation is to make favorable. The idea behind it is a, a sacrifice that is meant to appease God. The word appease means to make peace with. So this is how peace is made with God. It has, it has quite a historical cultural background because this would have been a very common word uh, back in the days of the New Testament as people were used to worshiping pagan deities and trying time after time to make peace with their, their pagan deities, offering up some kind of sacrifice to appease their gods, whether it was the god of war, the god of harvest, the god of uh, fertility, the, the God of um, anything. The, how do we make peace with this God? What kind of sacrifice does this God require? And it, sometimes like in worshiping Molech, uh, the pagan deity Molech, they sacrificed babies into a fire to his name. So that's the idea behind propitiate, a, a sacrifice that is made to appease God. But notice the reverse here. If we understand this as a sacrifice made to appease God, we have to ask who made the sacrifice? What was the sacrifice? The Lamb of God. Jesus Christ. In all the other pagan religions, man made sacrifices to try to appease God. In Christianity alone, God makes the sacrifice of his own son to appease his own wrath. How could the one true holy God ever be satisfied 
How could he ever be appeased? Not with anything that we would bring or do, but only with a sacrifice that he himself could make. It had to be perfect as he is perfect. So God turns the table on this whole idea of propitiation. He makes the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Also, this word translated propitiation is used in the Old Testament for the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was a gold-plated lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. It was that Ark of the Covenant that was placed in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the, the high priest of Israel took the blood of a lamb into the Holy of Holies by himself. Only one person once a year was allowed even to enter there. And he took the the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat over which two cherubim stood as sentinels. And God received that sacrifice for the sin of Israel for that year. So that was the mercy seat used only on the Day of Atonement. That's the same word. They use that word for uh, propitiation here. God set forth as the, you could think of this as the mercy seat, as then it would mean the place of propitiation. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest went behind the veil. It was in secret. No one else could see. In the Holy of Holies. But Christ, we're told, verse 25, whom God set forth publicly as the propitiation, not hidden behind the veil where no one could see, but outside of Jerusalem on a hill of Calvary, nailed to a cross for everyone to see, this is a sacrifice for the world. God set him forth publicly and purposefully. He set forth his son purposefully. Isaiah 53.10 said that it pleased the father to crush his son. That was the price paid for the gift of salvation. Whom God set forth as a sacrificial payment propitiation by his blood not just the death of Christ not not just that he was killed in any way but it had to be a bloody death in fact to be uh, in keeping with Old Testament prophecy it had to be a crucifixion but it had to be a, a bloody death both Leviticus and Hebrews tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, no taking away of sin. Whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood through faith. That's how we, how we access this. As verse 22 said, even the righteous, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 25, whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood through faith. 
how God accomplished our justification is the cross. How we access this justification is through faith. And thirdly, justification demonstrates God's righteousness. <clears throat> now the, the purpose of justification is not to demonstrate our righteousness. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of our justification is to demonstrate God's righteousness. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's suppose we had a kingdom with, um, that's filled with beggars just coming before their wealthy king. They have nothing in their hand, nothing they can bring. They're totally dependent beggars. And the king decides to give each of these beggars $10 million. And he does. He pays that price. He gives that to them. And they receive that. What, whose wealth does that demonstrate? The beggar's wealth or the king's wealth? For the king to be able to give that kind of a gift demonstrates his, the immensity of his wealth. And so here, the idea that we are declared righteous is not for the purpose of showing how righteous we are. It's to show how righteous God is. And so... Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation through his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, why does Paul bring up the need to demonstrate God's righteousness? Well, remember the earlier question and problem raised by the meaning of justification that being declared righteous means that God declares us first guilty and then righteous how can God be righteous if he does how can he call us both guilty and innocent not only innocent but righteous at the same time well in two ways. First of all, this is demonstrated regarding the past. And I take these two verses, 25 and 26, to mean the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, a lot of uh, commentators take these as being joined together. I, I see a difference here. Um, and who knows, I could be right. <laughs> we'll go on that assumption. <laughs> First of all, I believe it is demonstrated regarding the, the past, meaning the, the Old Testament. Think about this question. If you have to believe in Christ, you have to be cleansed by His blood, you have to be in Christ to get to heaven, what about people in the Old Testament? What about Noah, Jonah, David, Abraham? Elisha, Ezekiel. What, what about those people? 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God's forbearance means God patiently holding back his wrath. God's forbearance is God's active mercy. God for, God's forbearance is his deciding not to punish at that time. It's his active mercy holding back wrath, his forbearance. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, God passing over sin does not mean that God in any way condoned sin of the past. In fact, he knew the, uh, the darkness of that sin, the degradation of those people more than anyone. It's not as if he looked at it lightly or if he, as if he condoned it. But he chose not to fully punish sin at that time. There was punishment but they were not fully punished. Listen to Psalm 103, starting at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. God didn't look lightly upon the sin of the Old Testament. But he passed over for the time. When this term for passing over was used in the legal system of Paul's day, the, the passing over meant to, to delay or postpone punishment. To, to put off punishment. It didn't mean to remove punishment, but to delay or postpone it. God postponed the punishment of those Old Testament believers until the moment of the cross when he took all of that sin together and all of ours in the future and he unloaded it in wrath on his son on the cross. That's how God demonstrates his righteousness. That's how God could forgive Old Testament people. To demonstrate his righteousness for in his forbearance, God had previously passed over the sins that were previously committed. How about the present or what we might call the New Testament period or the age that we're in now? Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness 
that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we saw from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, it was an indictment against man and in every way declaring man to be guilty before God. But verse 21 of chapter 3 changes. But now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. But now signifies there's a change that has taken place. And we pick that up again in verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time the The word present is the same word as now in verse 21. But now, to demonstrate at the now time, this time now, his righteousness. Again, notice it demonstrates his righteousness, not ours. That God is just and the justifier. God is just God did not violate his own righteous requirements. Instead, he met his own righteous requirements and he gave the perfect blood sacrifice despite the cost. God is just because he met the requirements. God requires the sacrifice by by reason of his justice and God provides the sacrifice by reason of his mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God is the justifier that he might be just and the justifier. Only God can justify the very one to whom our sentence of eternal death is due took that sentence that punishment and put it on his son on the cross thus God provides complete justification for us he is just he has upheld his righteous requirement he is the justifier he's the one who supplies the gift of Justification of declaring us righteous. So you see, at the same time, God can say, even though you are guilty of every sin you know and more besides, I am going to declare you righteous, and I can do that because I paid every last bit of your debt. Now, for the third time in this passage, we get to how we. We come to have that gift. He is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God has done all of his part. He's provided all that is necessary. Now what is left for man is to have faith in him, to say, yes, God, I believe you. I believe in you. I believe that I have sinned, I know I have sinned, and I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. How will you get into heaven? By being justified by faith is the only way. 
Now finally, the, uh, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Out of this passage, and as the Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and Melanchthon and others sought through this, they, come up, they came up with these five only statements. I'll just read them time today. But sola fide means by faith alone. By looking at this passage, Martin Luther and others were convinced that that justification comes to man by faith alone. It's the only thing that we can offer to God is to believe in him. And even that is a gift of God. And it's sola gratia, by grace alone. By God's grace that he gives this gift. Sola scriptura, it's by scripture alone that we understand these things. It's in God's word. Solus Christus, it is accomplished by Christ alone. No one else could have paid the price and no one else did. Solus Christus by Christ alone. And so that in the end, it's soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to end with one final song of praise to God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How, how deep the, the Lord's love for us that he would die for, for our sin.